This morning's message is entitled, Slave or Free, and it, uh, we continue our study in the whole truth, looking at truths that seem to be contradictory or opposed to each other, but in fact are married to each other, twin truths that complement each other, enhance one another. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning, slave or free. Some of you may be familiar with a man, gentleman's name, by the, his name is Viktor Frankl. That's his name, Viktor Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor, and he was the man who wrote the best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning. How many of you have read that book, Man's Search for Meaning? Some of you have read that, and which is considered to be among the top 10 most influential books on planet Earth. Well, in his 1946 work, he presented an idea that was, uh, frankly, fascinating. And uh, you may have heard of this idea. I'm going to quote what he wrote, and he's speaking about freedom, freedom in this particular section of the book. He writes, freedom, however, is not the last word. Freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. And then he goes on to say this very fascinating thing. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the east coast of the United States be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the west coast. Now, some of you may have heard that recommendation floating around from time to time, and that's where it actually came from in the book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor. He saw that freedom and responsibility worked hand in hand. I don't know that I agree with everything that he mentioned in the quote, but his idea is very interesting. Does freedom come with responsibility? What happens if there are no parameters in life, no rules, no responsibility? It seems like everybody wants, wants freedom without responsibility. In the 2013 song, Can't Stop Now, the following words express the sentiment of many. It's our party, we can do what we want. It's our party, we can do what we want. It's our party, we can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. We can sing what we want. Red cups and sweaty bodies everywhere, hands in the air, like we don't care. And I think this is the point where they, didn't, they ran out of lyrics where they said, so la da dee da dee, we like to party, dancing with Molly. I'm not sure who Molly is. Now notice, doing whatever we want. This is our house. This is our rules. We cannot stop. We won't stop. And then in a popular Disney song of 2014, we have these lyrics. It's funny how some distance makes everything so, so small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time that we see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Who likes rules anyway? If you ask a non-Christian what his or her main complaint about Christianity is, chances are the response would be something like, I don't like all the rules down there at that church. Christianity is just about a list of do's and don'ts. I don't like other people telling me what to do. Are these indictments about the church true? Is Christianity just about following a set of rules or are, is there more that meets the eye? Is the church a barrier to liberty, enslaved by its desire to maintain certain societal norms or structures, or is the church a bastion of freedom or liberty, calling all to accept what it means to be truly free? 
Now, sermons on freedom sometimes are rare. I admit we pastors might preach a sermon here or two about religious liberty and the need to extend that God-given right to others, or we'll preach copious messages regarding freedom from sin, and both messages are needed and they are essential. But does the gospel bring other freedoms that we don't often talk about? The culture around us has a lot to say about liberty and freedom. We are essentially free to do what we want, to vote for whom we want, to worship the God we want, to choose the lifestyle we want, to say what we we want. Like Frank Sinatra, we want to sing, I did it my way. And for those who don't know who Frank Sinatra is because you're a little too young, it's like 50 cents used to say, we want to do things my way, doing my own thing. Nothing has a higher professed value in our society, it seems, than freedom. Now, the principle of freedom is the substance behind the cultures, our culture's emphasis on rights. The rights movement has ever extended, been extended to cover things like animal rights, abortion rights, and gay rights. Yet we need to ask the question, what is freedom? Truly, what is freedom? Where does it come from and what is it for? Coupled with this, these questions, is anything wrong anymore? Is anything wrong anymore? We sometimes act as if the word freedom has been coined or was coined on the the Mayflower. However, freedom has been a long-prized possession of humanity. The ancient Greeks, they wrote treaties about freedoms, and it was a major concern of the writers of the Holy Scriptures. Now, if we're honest, we know that the Bible's view on freedom does absolute violence to many of uh, the commonly held assumptions regarding freedom. Among other things, Scripture reveals that those who live for themselves, striving to exercise their own freedom, are actually slaves. While the church's rules, when understood correctly in light of God's expectations in His Word, are actually expressions of freedom, and that we will never find true freedom unless we are enslaved to our right and to our proper Lord. It's important to remember that we all experience certain limitations in freedom. You know, when you're free, you're not really truly free. You know that, right? For example, we are limited by our bodies. Now, uh, some of the short folk in our congregation might think that being tall provides copious amounts of freedom. But uh, just because we have long legs and we can reach the highest shelf in the cupboards in the kitchen doesn't mean that we are free sometimes from backaches and leg problems because of our longer legs. We are not free always. Freedom has certain limitations. Our bodies limit us. Our natural abilities limit us. Our natural abilities, our histories, even our past choices. Uh, When we think about oppressive Tyrannical governments dominate many people in the world. Some, including those even in free countries, are dominated by their employer, by their family, by their friends, by societal structures. Some are addicted by alcohol or drugs or to alcohol or drugs. Choosing sin provides incredible limiting power. Now, on top of that, our freedom is compromised essentially by every commitment that we make. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 16. And while Paul is dealing with the sin question, it's a very important principle that we need to keep in mind. Our freedom is compromised 
with every commitment that we make. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Peter, Paul and Peter both pointed out that people are essentially slaves to whatever they give themselves over to obey. Notice Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. He writes, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are to that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And Peter says the same thing essentially in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. We may commit ourselves, for example, to our jobs, to have pleasure, for example, or to certain class values, or even our selfish desires. But then those things have a degree of control over us. Now, if we choose, for those who love the sports cars, if we choose to drive a two-seated sport car, and we think that's going to provide an incredible amount of freedom, think again. You can only take how many passengers? One. Your sense of freedom brings restriction, brings certain restrictions. If we choose to live in an environmentally sound way, and probably we ought to do that, that'd be a good idea, we will be spending time sorting through and recycling certain used materials. Clearly, there are limitations on freedom. The issue, however, is not whether we will be free, but which Lord we will serve. That's really the question. Not whether we will be free, but which Lord we will serve. To think that we are free might mean that we might be looking at reality blindly. Even as Christians who experience the new birth in Jesus Christ, we are limited by the world in which we live. And as was already mentioned, sin severely impinges on our freedom. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Egotism. If you're egotistical, you'll always be in service to the need for recognition. Sexual impurity will always be in service to certain people or magazines or movies or the internet, hampering the ability to freely relate to people of the opposite sex. Coveting will be in in service to the things that they can never acquire, and the list can go on, you see. Now, the Apostle Paul, he viewed our plight as being caught under a, what someone termed a hierarchy of tyrants. The master tyrant being sin. For sin establishes the other tyrants, and sin brings about condemnation and judgment. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, Paul said, for the wages of sin is death. And of course, the gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Paul's mind, sin is not just the actions we perform or the thoughts that we think, but it is a powerful force to be reckoned with. In Romans chapter 7 verse 20, Paul wrote, now if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. He saw sin as a force to be reckoned with. That is tyrant number one. It's the one that tops the lot. Hand in hand, with sin, the sin of, with sin is the tyranny or tyranny of, se- of, of self. If we give ourselves over to our natural desires, but to do, if we give ourselves over to our natural desires, is to simply uh, be overcome by the tyranny of sin. That's why Paul counseled us in Ephesians 4.22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man or the old woman, which grows corrupt according to the deceitfulness of lust.'" 
put off the old man. And serving under the tyranny of sin is tyrant number three, Satan. Satan who is relentless in his desire to hinder and to harm and to destroy. Paul wrote in Acts 26 verse 18 to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Satan is truly a force to be reckoned with. And then fourth, fourth, fourth tyrant is death. The good news is that death has been conquered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, death is something we must all face this side of eternity uh, if Jesus doesn't come first. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote, Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as Christians, we don't need to be fearful or afraid of death because death is just a sleep and we sleep a little bit, and we slumber just a little bit until Jesus calls our name when he comes back again, and the, and the tombs will be open, and earth, earth will open up, and those who died in Jesus Christ will rise from their dusty beds. We do not need to fear death, but it is certainly a tyrant. It is certainly a tyrant. It is an enemy. The Bible goes on to list numerous other tyrants that try to take away our freedom from our inability to fear to even our doubts. But the outcome for them all is the same. Jesus Christ has overcome the tyrants. And that's wonderful news, and we've got to say amen today. Jesus came, why, friends? Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to set the captives free, free from the tyrants, free from the tyrants of sin, free from the tyrant of self, free from the tyrant of Satan, free from the tyrant of death. Jesus came to set the captives free. The message of the gospel is that the master tyrant sin has been overthrown through Jesus. By His grace, God provides freedom, not only from the punishment of sin, but also from sin's power. I make no apology for declaring here this morning that there is freedom in Jesus Christ from sin. We're sitting here, we're living testimonies of the fact that Jesus liberates us from sin. I want to tell you about Heather. Some of you know Heather, she comes here. She started coming here when we conducted our meetings a couple of years ago, Discover Revelation, embracing these truths, giving up her past. But she wrestled with the addiction of tobacco and she was very, very ill to the extent she was coughing up blood it wasn't looking good. And as she and our church Bible worker, Jan, were praying and studying together, Jan challenged her and told her Jesus could set her free. And so they threw away all the paraphernalia. She threw away the paraphernalia, that is Heather. And Heather prayed, and Heather is free. Heather is free. Heather's free. And Heather's been free for, whoa, what is it, a hundred and some days. hundred and I don't know. She, I've lost count. I don't know if she's lost count, but she's been free. Free. No desire for nicotine. Free. And not only that, when God freed her, she took in a breath and she realized for the first time 
She hadn't breathed like that in years. Before it be a shortened breaths, difficult breaths. But she took in a breath and she never breathed, hadn't breathed like that in years. And she walked up steps and she didn't lose her breath. She got on her bike and is still riding her bike and doesn't lose her breath. Well, depends on how fast she rides naturally, but she, Jesus set her free. And Jesus healed her, you understand. That's what Jesus does. I make no apology for declaring that Jesus came to set the sinner free, to set the captives free, you see. For her and for all of us, Christ has overcome and he's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan and he has conquered death. With Christ, nothing can legitimately keep us enslaved, keeping us from what God has intended for us to be by his grace through the working of his Holy Spirit. True freedom. True freedom emerges from a freedom of the soul, freedom of the spirit, a freedom from wrong desires, from ignorance, freedom from barriers within that prohibit authentic living, freedom from sin. We can never be free until we are free within. You read stories of those that were, were gay or transgender and their incredible conversion stories. Thank God that they found freedom in Christ that enabled them to be, to forgive, to be forgiven, and to piece their life back together again. This, friends, is the message of the Bible. It's a book of freedom, and the gospel is the emancipation proclamation. I want to tell you that starting in the Old Testament, the message of freedom rings true. The Exodus story is a, is a story of what, friends? It's a story of when God, what? Liberated his people, you see, from Egyptian bondage. This story becomes the pattern by which God's redemption is described throughout the rest of the Bible. You also have the, in the Old Testament the year of Jubilee. You can read about that in Leviticus 25. When every 50 years, the 50th year, debts were canceled, slaves were freed, land reverted to the original land owner, family owners, and fields were left unplanted. And it's a marvelous picture, the year of Jubilee, of freedom. Within this recurring pattern of liberation, no family was continually shackled by past failures or by debts. When we talk about the day of the Lord, the, the time that Jesus will return, when Jesus returns, we understand the Bible teaches that this is a day of deliverance, a day of freedom, you see, from this world, from sin and Satan and temptation, free from oppression. And what is true, and we know this, of the Old Testament is definitely true of, also of the New Testament. Think, of course, about the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry of setting people free. Jesus released people from the power of demons, from sickness, and from the burdens imposed by legal traditions. He tore down barriers that prevented Gentiles, women, and other outcasts from being accepted as a whole person. And his offer of the kingdom invited all people into the banquet in his father's house. That was the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to set the captives free. Now, while other New Testament writers also speak of freedom, I want to talk a minute about the writings of Paul, who is often termed the apostle of liberty. Apostle of liberty. In Galatians 5 verse 1, he, he wrote, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And that could be suggested as a great summary of the gospel that Paul preached. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. 
when you take just a glance at the theological words that Paul uses to describe salvation, it uh, shows how fitting this summary is. For example, all the terms, all the terms he uses expresses freedom. Think about the word justification. That's a big theological word. Justification means what? Justification means acquittal. He talks about redemption. Redemption refers to freedom to, uh, or release that is obtained by the payment of, uh, or of a price, such as the purchasing of the freedom of a slave. He uses the word reconciliation, ex- which expresses the end of hostilities. He uses the word salvation, of course, it, which itself implies rescue from danger. That's the theology of Paul. Certainly, we could suggest that he is the apostle of liberty. We can only, friends, find freedom, true freedom in Jesus. And when we accept him as the Lord of our lives, only then, only there we might find freedom. Only there are the various tyrants or tyrannies broken. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks said that the key to freedom, interestingly, was not caring. That was what they said. The key to freedom for the Greeks was not caring. If Jesus is Lord of our lives, we will be free because we will not care for the wrong things. We will not care for sin. We will not care to follow the the, the natural desires of our hearts. We will not care for those things. We will not care about propping up our egos or fulfilling wrong desires. When we care for Jesus' concerns, we are free to be what God created us to be. So what does freedom look like in Christ? What does freedom look like in Christ? The Bible texts dealing with freedom sound extremely paradoxical sound a little confusing. They all contain words that seem to describe the opposite of freedom. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at several here together. Let's take a look here. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul, talking about freedom, also introduces words that seem to describe the opposite of freedom. So what, what is biblical freedom? What is true freedom? What does it look like? Freedom in Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 The Apostle Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to what? Liberty. You've been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, for your carnal desires, for selfish desires. But through love, do what? Serve one another. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. We have been called to what? Liberty. We've been called to liberty, and yet we've also been called to serve. We've been called to be servants. Slave, are you slave or are you free? Or are you both? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Let's go over there. A couple other verses we're going to take a look at. 1 Peter, right over there before you get to Revelation and John, 3 John. Uh, you've got 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16. Notice Peter talks the same way as Paul does. 1 Peter 2, verse 16, he says, As free, let's look at verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, you and I are what? Free. You and I are free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as what? Bondservants to God. Slave or free or both. Let's take a look at one more, James chapter 1. James uses the law of God to, it's very interesting what he says here. We're probably very familiar with these words. 
James chapter 1, verse 25. One should have noticed here. James 1, verse 25. Interestingly, he even refers to God's law, which many people see as being restrictive, but the Christian views as setting a person free, providing liberty. He even calls the law of God the law of liberty. Look at this. But he who looks into the perfect law of what? Liberty. The perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be, a, will be blessed in what? He does. James even refers to God's law, what is perceived to be restrictive, as the law of freedom, the law of liberty. How can that be? How is it possible that God's law provides freedom and provides liberty? In the uh, book Education, page 291, I want to read this for you, just a paragraph. It says, This law, talking about the Ten Commandments, this law is the preserver of true freedom and liberty. The author goes on to say, she goes on to say, it points out and prohibits those things that degrade and enslave, and thus to the obedient, it affords protection from the power of evil. And then she quotes the psalmist where David wrote in Psalm 119, 45, I will walk at liberty. Why? Because I seek thy precepts. Liberty apart from obedience, no such thing. Liberty apart from responsibility doesn't exist. The law of God was designed to uh, preserve true freedom and true liberty, you see, pointing out and prohibiting those things which truly enslave and those who obey the law of God, it affords protection from the power of evil. evil. Talk about liberty. Talk about freedom. Question for you. If you placed your sheep and you lived in an area where there are coyotes or perhaps even wolves, and you place your sheep and you're, you're a shepherd, just pretend you're a shepherd, and you place them in a, in a sheep pen, in a sheep fold, and you are putting them in there, are you restricting their liberties or are you providing freedom for them? Why? Why would you say that? Because they like to roam, they like to be out in the fields. You know that, but you also know there are coyotes, there are, there are ravenous wolves out there that like to have their, uh, sink their fangs into those sheep, you see. And so that protection around those sheep during the night hours is to protect them and to provide liberty, liberty for for living. And God's law acts as the same way you see. Those guardrails you see going up there, the Sierras, those guardrails there are not to prevent you from having having an enjoyable driving experience. Those guardrails on the way up to the Sierra mountains are there to preserve and protect your life and allow you to get to your destination safely. If it, if it so happens that you have a flat tire and you run into the guardrail, you are protected and prevented from going off the edge. And boy, if you've looked down there, it's a long way down. Those guardrails are not there for your misery. They are there for your protection. God's law is there for us so that we might be preserved alive to serve Jesus, you see. Liberty. Liberty. These words that Paul uses, Peter uses, James uses, it seems a paradox. Freedom, and yet we are servants. Freedom, and yet we are bond servants. We are to serve. Freedom and the law, that restrictive law, is also known as the liberty, law of liberty. The key for understanding these paradoxes of Christian freedom is the recognition that we are not merely freed as Christians from various tyrants that are set out to destroy us. We are freed for obedience and service for God. 
That helps us understand this apparent paradox. We are not freed merely from the various tyrants that are set out to destroy us. We are freed for obedience and service for God. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 28. This is seen clearly over here, the practical, practical illustration that Paul gives us. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Notice what he says. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him do what? Labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has a need. The person who did wrong to satisfy his own desire has been changed, been converted, and is now working to satisfy the needs of somebody else. Freed for obedience, freed for service, you see. In other words, we are free. We are freed to love, and we are free to live as God intended. When the Bible writers talk about certain things that the follower of God should not do, they are not setting down their own form of legalism. They're describing what it means to love for Christ, to love for God. A person cannot be committing sexual sins, greed, anger, malice, and be free from Christ. Impossible, you see. They are still enslaved to their sins. Instead, a Christian must exhibit compassion and humility and justice, and patience, and forgiveness, and especially love. To live for Christ is to be truly free. To be freed by Christ is to be freed to love according to His Word. That's what it means to be free in Jesus Christ. But frankly, frankly, freedom can be a dangerous thing and easily abused. That's why Paul and Peter and James wrote what they did. But it, nonetheless, but it is nonetheless the fruit of the gospel. As someone said, freedom is, as safe a possession, freedom is a safe possession only where there is self-control to balance it. Still, the Apostle Paul, he needed to spend much of his time helping churches grapple with their new freedom in Jesus Christ. While the specific concerns may have changed in 2,000 years, the underlying issues Paul addressed are just as relevant for us here today in the 21st century. I want to take you over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse, uh, verses, yeah, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, in his first letter to the Corinthian believers, Paul takes the time to answer questions related to the practice of freedom what it means to be free in Christ. You are truly free. You're a free person. And he does so specifically in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, uh, his first letter to the, to the Corinthians. The question here was, can Christians eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? That was the question that was being asked because most of the food in the markets would have been sacrificed and offered to idols. <clears throat> now, a few years earlier at the Jerusalem Council, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 15, a few years earlier in the Jerusalem Council when it convened, they it convened to address certain restrictions Jewish converts to Christianity had placed on Gentile converts to Christianity, namely circumcision. At the conclusion of the council, it was agreed that all converts refrain from things offered to idols, among other things. Now, in Corinth, there were men who were resisting the restriction that the church had placed on them, claiming that they had the right to eat what they chose. So while on one hand, Paul forbade participation in idolatrous practices, 
He did that. On the other hand, however, he allowed these individuals freedom. For, he allowed freedom for people to buy and to eat food without worrying whether it was or had been offered to idols before they ate it. Since, as he said, as mature Christians, they knew that. Look at verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. Notice, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. It's just a piece of metal. It's nothing, Paul says. It's okay. It's all right if you choose to eat it. You're not violating your conscience if, if it's not a problem for you, you see, he said. And so, but, he goes on to say, but however, if a person's conscience was offended, especially someone who is weaker in the faith, maybe a new convert, maybe not, but someone who's weaker in the faith and tempted by idolatry, then Christians should abstain from eating things offered to idols. He goes on to say that in verses 9 through 11. But beware, lest someone, or somehow rather, this liberty of yours become a what? Stumbling block to those, to those, what does it say there? I lost my place. To those, oh, hang on a second, where am I? First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, there I am. Yes, thank you. Beware, lest this, somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ has died? Don't do it. Don't do it. It may not be a problem for you. It's, it's essentially a non-issue. But, but if it offends, causes offense to a weaker brother, insomuch that he feels compelled to eat against his conscience, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it in his presence. Don't do it when he's around. Don't talk about doing it in his presence or her presence. Don't do it. Now, from Paul's treatment of a similar issue found in Romans 14, we're just going to kind of break this down a little bit. Go over there with me to Romans 14. Three principles emerge that help us govern, that should help us govern the personal freedoms that we as Christians experience in Christ because there are, we need governing. We need instruction. We need to walk as Jesus walked. Romans chapter 14. And, uh, and it's, it's actually Romans 14 verse 1 through Romans 15 verse 6. We're not going to read the whole, uh, whole uh, chapter here. But before we, before we look at some of the verses in this chapter, let's familiarize ourselves with this particular, uh, these particular verses. The weak believers in verse 1, look at what it says there. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Receive them. Don't push them back, but receive them but not to disputes over what? Doubtful things. And so the weak believers are to be welcomed into fellowship, but not for the purpose of getting into controversies with them. The stronger brethren in the church are not to pass judgment on the reservations of those who are or have a weaker faith. You see, well, a far more sensitive conscience when it comes to certain things. So the question is, who are the weak? We're just doing a quick review. The weak Christians are those who are so eager to be saved that they will do whatever they can, what they believe is required of them to achieve salvation. They'll do whatever it takes. But in the immaturity of their experience, they attempt to make their salvation, they attempt to make their salvation more certain by observing certain rules and regulations that aren't actually binding on them or any other Christian. However, they regard them as absolutely essential 
for salvation. And they get confused and distressed when they see other Christians, especially those with more experience who don't share their same concerns and hesitations. That's the weaker brethren, the weak, those weak in the faith. Paul's statements in Romans chapter 14, you may be familiar, have unfortunately been used to put down vegetarians, remove restrictions on clean and unclean animals, and it's a treaty to abolish the Sabbath. However, this chapter doesn't deal with any of those issues. Doesn't deal with any of those issues. Instead, they relate very closely with Paul's counsel to the Corinthian believers that he gave a year before writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, namely, food offered to idols, as well as offerings and as well as the keeping of certain feast days, which the Jewish converts to Christianity had a very hard time giving up. For the Gentiles, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't steeped in their culture. It wasn't something that they did, you see. And so they were weak on both sides. They were weak on both sides, you see. Romans, in Romans 14, Paul urges that the stronger Christian give sympathetic consideration to the problems of their weaker friends. So what are the three principles that emerge from this chapter to help us govern the personal freedoms that we experience in Christ so as to not cause disunity and division amongst the brethren? So we go to the first one, and we're going to put that up on the screen for you. Each person, this is principle number one, each person should determine the validity of an action for him or herself. There is no pope, there are no scholars, there are no friends who you can or should think for you. Notice in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, notice what Paul says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. He's talking about feast days. Let each be what? Fully convinced or convicted in his or her own mind. So here it is, if we are to be judged for what we do, and we will be, we should be assured in our own minds of the particular thing of a particular thing before we act on it. Our consciences, educated by the Word of God, is what we are to be obedient to. We are to be convinced in our own minds. Now, an emphasis on the necessity of individual decision, however, shouldn't be confused with individualism. All our decisions take place in the context of a community of faith, which we will get to in just a moment. In the end, however, the individual, you and I, are responsible for making sound biblical decisions for the life God has given for us to live. It's up to you. Each person should determine the validity of an action by him or for him or herself. Number two, number two, no one should reject another believer for a different practice. Romans chapter 14, verse 3, notice, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has what? Received him. Look at verse 10. Jump over to verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the assumption here is the assumption underlying the, this particular principle, these principles, is that the area of disagreement is over non essentials. Not talking about the law of God, not talking about salvation here, we're talking about non-essentials and that both persons are acting for the Lord. If they're doing it for the Lord, then they are to be received, you see. Don't judge them, don't give them a hard time, receive them because God has received them. Now, 
If sin or if error were the issue, then the discipline of the church would be in order. Or we would expect the kind of face-to-face confrontation that Paul had with Peter over Peter's behavior with the Gentile believers when the Jews came down and saw Peter eating with the Gentiles. But in the areas of non-essentials, nothing should be done to break the relationship between believers. There are folk who have a very sensitive conscience and believe that you shouldn't have a television in your home. You should not have a TV in your home. And there are others who say, it's okay because I have control of that TV and I only watch programs that edify and educate my family. There shouldn't be a point of contention in God's church. One shouldn't look down on another because of their particular practice. And I'm not suggesting that the one without the TV is the weaker brother either. Not suggesting that. The weaker brother may be the one with the TV to having a hard problem with the TV. And they need help and encouragement, you see. A non-essential might be, I eat whole grain bread, you eat white bread. Now granted, whole grain bread is healthier for you, but we're not going to create division and a great divide in the church because someone chooses to eat white bread, you see. If you, dear lady, like to wear heels, don't give the other one who doesn't like to wear heels a hard time. And those who don't like to wear heels, don't give those who are wearing heels a hard time. These are non-essentials, you see. And we could talk about eco-friendly cars versus regular cars, and the list can go on. These are non-essentials. Non-essentials, you see. Christians don't have to agree on everything. Did I just say that? Christians do not have to agree on everything when it comes to non-essentials to non-essentials. In fact, they are expected. You and I are expected not to agree on everything. The key ingredient for all of us, however, is that our actions are done for the Lord and that we are faithful to His truth, His explicit will, you see. Given this motive and the conformity to Christ's character, non-essential differences in practice should never be the basis for rejection. That's number two. Number three, we should deny our personal freedom and liberty rather than cause offense. So if eating white bread in the presence of someone who's very convicted about whole grain bread is going to cause him offense, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat whole grain bread. I eat whole grain bread. I don't eat white bread anyway, but I'm going to eat whole grain bread. You see what I'm talking about, right? Non-essentials. Put away, put away those, those, those opinions and the rights that you have so that you do not cause offense to your brother. So that you do not cause offense to your sister. Romans 14, 13. Let's take a look at what Paul goes on to say. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Let's continue reading. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us do what? Pursue, pursue the things which make for peace and the things which, are, which one may edify another. At first glance, friends, this seems to contradict our freedom. Instead, however, it is the recognition that faith 
working through love is actually the epitome of our freedom. Remember, freedom in Christ is freedom for service to others, you see. There are times when we will have to sacrifice our freedom, our rights, but there are also times when we will have to defend our freedom and the freedom of others. We are not at the, wor- at the mercy of the weaker parties. We are not. We are to show, however, concern and sensitivity to them so that they are not offended or excluded from the community. Now, keep in mind that those referred to as the weaker person implies that they should be taught. And you can read that in Galatians 6 verse 1. The problem, of course, both in Paul's day and our own, is the identification of the weaker person as the one with whom we disagree. Paul essentially concludes his discussion in Romans 15 verses 1 through 7 by calling us to imitate Christ who chose to edify others rather than himself. Again, all these principles assume that we are dealing with non-essential matters, non-essential issues, those subjects that are not central to the faith of the believer. But determining which matters are essential and which matters are non-essential in itself is an area which you and I can agree and disagree on too. Would it be safe to say that some wars have been fought over what some have considered, uh, have thought, have not thought were non-essentials? Truly. No doubt when Peter refraining from eating with the Gentiles because Jews showed up, he did not see himself sacrificing the, pr- the principle of, gospel, of the gospel. However, Paul thought and it was an essential of the gospel. An essential of the gospel was at stake and he let Peter know it. And some might say he let Peter have it. In defining what is essential, we should be placing our emphasis where the Bible does. Where the Bible does. Where does the Bible place its emphasis Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. The scriptures focus on Jesus Christ. The scriptures focus on the life, the death, his incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible focuses on the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. The scriptures talk about the resurrection of of the just and the unjust and Jesus' soon and imminent return. These are central, you see, to the believer because that's where the Bible places its emphasis. The Bible places its emphasis on obedience to the law of God, the Ten Commandment Decalogue, the new covenant promises that the Spirit of God will write the law in our hearts and in our minds. We are to place our emphasis where the Bible places its emphasis. The Bible also places its emphasis on the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14, the everlasting gospel that's to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. You see, this is the message that we are to focus on, that we are to, we are to be concerned about. The Bible focuses on that message. We focus on that message as well. Second angel's message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The third angel's message, do not worship the beast, its image will receive its mark or you'll receive of the wrath of God. That's how we determine what is essential, by placing our emphasis where the Bible places its emphasis. And just, out of, just for interest, where it says there in the first angel's message, give glory to God, Paul says we are to give glory to God in everything that we eat and everything that we drink, and in everything that we do. This affects our entire lifestyle. That is essential. 
That is essential. So where God says, do not eat this thing right here, it's unclean, then we say, all right, Lord, you know what's best for me. Don't put that alcohol in your, in your mouth. Then we say, all right, Lord, if that's what you want, then I don't put that in my mouth. I'm not going to touch that stuff, you see. We don't do those things. Instead, we look at the Word of God. We study its principles. We see in the Garden of Eden that it would be better that we go back to the Edenic diet, you see. But we're not going to hang that over someone's head or beat them up because they're not a vegetarian, you see. Keeping essentials first. It's the only way to place the emphasis in the right place. When we place our emphasis where the Bible places it. A crucial task for us as a church, for God's people, is to clearly distinguish clearly distinguish as clearly as possible between the gospel and that which is not. Somebody highlighted the paradox, this paradoxical, paradoxical freedom this way. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. However, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, servant to all. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.19, and I'm closing now, this is it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. And why did he do that? That he might win more. That he might win more. Paul was willing to labor for others. When Paul gave his life to Jesus Christ, met him there on the road to Damascus, his life was forever changed. And he was truly free. He'd experienced liberty in the Lord, but that liberty led him to becoming a slave, a servant to others. Why? In order to win them to the Jesus that he had come to know, you see. Paul was willing to labor for others as a slave does without reward or pay to advance their welfare. Like a slave wishing to please his master or become, or because he is forced to do so, he was willing to comply with the habits, the customs, and opinions of others as far as possible without compromising principle. And he did this for the sole purpose of winning people to Jesus Christ. He did this for the sole purpose of winning people to the kingdom of heaven. He was prepared to be of no account if by so doing, some might be one to the Lord. You are free in the Lord. Is it not your same ambition to be a slave to men as Paul was? You are free in Jesus. Are you not willing to be a slave that you might win some to Christ? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.